Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. It's fun to say that again. We've, uh, we took a break from our series in Mark, uh, you know, through Advent and, and in January, and, and we're back and we're going to start in chapter 10. Uh, we're going to take uh, the next few weeks and, and as, as we get back into Mark, uh, you, as you're about to hear, there's this discussion about marriage and divorce and uh, it, it's actually a challenge that is uh, being given to Jesus. The Pharisees are testing him, and, and so we'll talk uh, about that. But today we're going to try to just do a, a broad brush stroke about God's purpose, you know, his plan for marriage. And then, uh, you know, in the weeks to come, next week we'll talk about the, the problem of marriage, how marriage can be a test for us as, as the Pharisees are testing Jesus on this topic uh, we'll talk about the, the persons of marriage, you know, what it means to be male and female, husbands and wives, uh, and, uh, and we'll, we'll do some things along those lines. Uh, so I'm looking forward to this series. Uh, what I want you to, to, to hear is, um, like I said, this broad brush stroke, but, but listen to the reference. Uh, what did Moses command you? Um, do we know... Even if you're married or if you're hoping to be married, maybe you were married, um, do we know really what God's plan and purpose is for our marriages, for marriage in general? I know we have lots of ideas, you know, some are valid, some maybe not, maybe some need to be questioned. Uh, but, but fundamentally, do we know what God's plan for marriage is? So I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 in Mark chapter 10. And he left there, that is Jesus, and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. All right, let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we do ask for you to send your spirit uh, to help us, help us uh, understand the plan and purpose for marriage as you define it, uh, as you give it to us. Help us to, those of us who are married, to embody that. Uh, help those of us who hope to be married to, to aspire to that. Uh, Lord, as a congregation, as a, as a community, as a family of faith, Lord, help us to support this and, and portray this to our community so that um, our neighbors and the nations can see more of your pattern, more of your goodness, more of your love uh, for your people as you show it to us in the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so this question in verse three, 
Jesus is responding to a question with a question. He does this all the time. It's wonderful Jewish rabbinical you know, teaching style. Uh, so he's, he's responding to their question with a question of his own. What did Moses command you? It's a really, really important question as we look at these verses and as we spend the next few weeks talking about, about marriage. Um, <clears throat> what, what ultimately we want to look at at the end of this, uh, this sermon is what does Jesus command us? Not just what does Moses command, what does Jesus command us? But before we get there, um, let's, let's look at what the Pharisees are settling for versus what God is, is, is calling us to, to strive for. The Pharisees are settling for brokenness, and God's calling us to strive for blessing. Uh, I, want, I want to give you a little, a little context here as we're looking at this passage. Verse 1, as we're getting back into Mark, um, we've spent a lot of time up in the north around the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum, uh, that area, that district of, of Galilee, that's in the north. And now Jesus is making his way south toward Judea. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And Mark chapters 8, 9, and 10, you know, where we're, we're getting ready to wrap up chapter 10, um, is, has been telling us again and again, um, and, and two times now, we'll get to the third time, at the end of chapter 10, Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem, and there the Son of Man's going to be betrayed into the hands of men. He'll be you know, beaten and uh, um, uh, cursed and spat on, and, and, and then he's going to be killed. And then I'll rise again. And the disciples are all going, uh-huh, you know, but just glazed over. They have no idea. Uh, so, so these chapters are really pivotal because they're, they're turning the attention toward Jesus' suffering. Um, the first half of Mark is about his ministry and his teaching, and the second half of Mark is basically about his, his work as our substitute sin bearer. He's going to suffer in our place and then rise again so that we can have forgiveness. But as, as we're looking at this passage now, Galilee is, he's not going back. He's heading south. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And it says that he's beyond the Jordan. I should be doing this way. He, um, when you see, hear the language beyond the Jordan, the orientation is Jerusalem. So to be beyond the Jordan means you're on the other side of the Jordan. You're east of the Jordan. And, and uh, that should trigger uh, geographically another thing, you know, memory from Mark, early in Mark, John the Baptist was beyond the Jordan. And that's where he was ministering. And that's where the people came to him to hear him preach. And how did John the Baptist, you know, conclude his ministry? It, it wasn't, wasn't pretty. Uh, he got in trouble because he was condemning Herod uh, for his illicit marriage. And you know, we'll get to more of this next week with the trap that the Pharisees are trying to lay. But isn't this interesting that the Pharisees are coming to Jesus at the same place where John the Baptist was, and what are they trying to trap him with? This whole question about divorce and remarriage, you know, alluding to you know, Herod's situation. So I just want to give you that, that setting, that context. And so when Jesus comes and he replies to their question, what did Moses command you? It's, it's pretty remarkable <clears throat> that the Pharisees are responding this way. They, in verse 4, they said that Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away, um, which is very telling about their whole paradigm for, for what does Moses command us. I mean, that's Jesus' question is, what is Moses, God, through Moses, calling you to do? What's his command? And instead, what they say is Moses allowed or is permitting. You know, it's sort of this a reactionary thing rather than anything proactive. 
they quote Deuteronomy 24, which is one of the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. So it's, you know, they feel like they're, you know, being clever here as Pharisees to quote Moses. But I want to, there's a few verses long, so, you know, hang in there, but you need to hear what is Deuteronomy 24 saying. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then he finds no favor, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who had sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, in brackets, by him, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Um, all right, so this is this provision for divorce. Uh, and it's not pretty. If you read it from the perspective of the woman, she is being very, very poorly treated. The first husband finds no favor uh, with her. So she's not loved. And he comes up with some excuse to send her packing. And then she you know, has to find protection and provision because of the way that society worked in this age. Uh, and finds another home, another husband, and this husband hates her, right, and sends her out. You know, what Moses is providing here is a way for this woman through requiring a certificate of divorce, a way for this woman who is being, you know, ill-treated by her first husband and then even by the second husband, that every time that she has to leave this, this structure, this security of the home, she gets her certificate of divorce, which means that she can find new security under the protection of another you know, husband, but, but with the allowance that this is a legitimate remarriage. She has been properly divorced. She is not an adulteress. God is covering her, and God is protecting her and providing for her. But this is a broken system. It's a broken situation. And we'll, you know, we'll look more carefully, as I said, about this trap that the Pharisees are trying to lay. But, uh, but I just want you to see that by quoting Deuteronomy 24 as the commandment of Moses, Jesus' response in verse 5 shows you that he just basically does this. You know, it's a facepalm. He can't believe what he's hearing. He says to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. In other words, God's law, his commandment, you know, through Deuteronomy 24, this is just damage control. The, the certificate of divorce is commanded to protect a, a woman who's being mistreated. Uh, and, and so sin, having hardened our hearts, uh, God's law will give us restraints to make, you know, things that are bad, not worse. Uh, so their hardened hearts wouldn't otherwise, you know, make things even even more uh, terrible for this woman. And the Pharisees are just, by quoting Deuteronomy 24, demonstrating that uh, the, their hardness of heart has led them to settle for brokenness. They're saying, well, here, here's what we can do. 
They're settling for brokenness instead of striving for blessing because the real question is what did Moses command, not to just what did he permit or what did he allow? And to answer that, you know, Jesus shows us what Moses commanded. Why not start at the beginning? The beginning of Moses' books, the beginning of the Pentateuch, which is Genesis. And so Jesus quotes Moses in Genesis 1 and 2, right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And Jesus is quoting from Genesis 1. And God blessed them. This is blessing. The commandment of Moses was to, to pursue, strive for blessing. And God said to them, be fruitful. And multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So <clears throat> I know that you've heard those verses many, many times, uh, but perhaps you're new uh, to the Bible, new to the church. And so that's, that, that might be new information for you. And if it is, I'm really glad you're here because you're going to kind of put that in the right box for relationships. But for a lot of us who have, are overly familiar with maybe those words, I want to just ask you, what do those verses tell us about marriage? Um, what, does, what does the commandment of Moses tell us about striving for blessing in our marriage? It's easy to hear those and just go, yeah, I've heard that before, and completely kind of miss, what does that mean for me if I'm married right now, what does it mean for me in relationship with my spouse? Or if I'm hoping to be married one day, what does it mean I need to be, you know, thinking about in, in terms of my goals for my future marriage? Or even just as a part of this congregation, as a part of this community, what should I be pursuing in order to have a healthy marriage? Or what should healthy marriages look like? Um, so we get three things from Genesis 1 and 2. First of all, you're God's image bearers. <clears throat> And we've talked about this before, where God calls human beings particularly and uniquely to show the world what God is like. God's power, his justice, his holiness, his goodness, his truth, his love, his righteousness, his forgiveness. As his image bearers, we're putting those things on display. And we go, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But now in the context of marriage, specifically apply that calling to be God's image bearers. Do you know what you're left with? Do you know what the implication is? For husbands, this means that you are uniquely called to demonstrate and reflect God's character and God's qualities to your wife. His love, his pursuit, his compassion, his affection, his jealousy in a healthy way, uh, his, his forgiveness, you know, his leadership, his provision, his protection, you know, all of those things. Our wives are supposed to get a pretty good glimpse of what God's character is in the way that we husband. 
Like that's a pattern, that's God's plan for marriage is that husbands be showing our wives what God is like. And the same goes the other way, in the other direction. Wives, you are called, God's plan for your marriage is for you to be his image bearer to your husband. That your husband has a clearer picture of the nature and the character of God and his love and his affirmation, his encouragement, his help, um, his forgiveness, his patience, all these different ways that in our marriages we're called to demonstrate and reflect the nature of God. I know that seems fundamental, but it radically changes the way that we look at what is my role as a spouse. I'm God's image bearer, right? So our words and our actions and our attitudes are either magnifying God's image or distorting it and warping it and giving our spouses or giving our friends, if you want to broaden this out to broader relationships, we're either showing people the reality of God in an imperfect way to be sure, but you know, hopefully a clear reflection or a real distortion of it. You know, and so this is one of those things where we also want to pause and see that, you know, it's not like I go and figure out uh, how to be a better image bearer of God and then I come into to my home or come back into the, the marriage relationship and, so, and, and then, you know, here, honey, I'm going to show you everything I'm, I'm learning and what I'm growing as a disciple and trying to follow Jesus and reflect his reality to you. It's not like I just bring all that in from the outside. I also need to realize from one image bearer married to another, is that God is teaching me about his image through my spouse. And I need to learn from my spouse. It would be kind of fruitless and, and redundant if we were a carbon copy of one another. But I actually have things to learn about the nature and the character of God from my spouse, which you know, I need to take this to heart just as much as any of us do, which means that we need to be incredibly concerned, deeply alarmed whenever you begin to think that, you know who needs to change in this marriage for this marriage to get better? You know who really needs to change? You do. Have you become a perfect reflection of God yet? None of us have. We are all growing. And so sure, God's at work in your spouse, but God's at work in you too. And so fundamentally, as we come into our marriages as image bearers, we have this unique privilege. We're the only person on this planet who can be a spouse to our spouse and to show our spouse the, the beauty and the reflection of God's character and quality. So that's one of those purposes, to be his image bearers. What else does Genesis tell us? Well, it tells us to, to multiply, <laughs> fill the earth with more image bearers. Did you know that, I don't know, maybe this seems sort of like, you know, common sense uh, to some of you, but, but maybe this is new for you, some of you. One of God's purposes, like fundamental, plan for marriage, why, he, why he's designed it, why he gave it to us, was that we would have children that we would multiply God's image bearers. And you can do this you know, biologically, you can do it through adoption, you know, whatever. But the point here is that 
a husband and a wife, a mom and a dad come together. They're trying to be God's image bearers to one another. And as they multiply, they're filling the world with more image bearers who are showing the, the neighbors and the nations the character of God. And that means that it's not enough for us just to multiply. We're not, we're not rabbits. Um, we're also disciplers. Parents are called to disciple our kids. And and the goal, the prayerful goal, is that our, our kids adopt that responsibility. They take upon their own self, their soul, I have a calling to be God's image bearer. And I'm learning about that from mom and dad, learning about that from my brothers and sisters. But fundamentally, I'm being sent out into the world to be his image bearer, his ambassador. And that's how we're multiplying, to bring blessing uh, to, to the world and to our communities. Third purpose that we see from Genesis is, uh, this is God's plan, right? This is what God commanded us through Moses is that we would go and exercise dominion, which sounds like a total power trip. <laughs> let, me, let me tone this down. Exercise dominion means spread God's kingdom. We're called in our marriages to spread God's kingdom as his agent. So it's not our dominion. It's not my dominion. It's not my spouse's dominion. It's God's dominion, his kingdom, that he wants to see spread through, you know, our marriage. And that means that fundamentally, there's lots of things that, you know, we pursue in our marriages with our spouses, but fundamentally, we're image bearers, we're called to multiply, and we're called to partner, husbands and wives, are called to partner with each other to spread the dominion, the kingdom of God, to do this, to repair broken things, to straighten what is crooked, to heal what is ill, what is sick, you know, to bring blessing. That is what your marriage is for. And so it just kind of broadens our picture, and it gives us a sense of purpose beyond just surviving, beyond just self-satisfaction. We just want to be happy or whatever, you know, uh, popular terms are out there. Because we, what we, at the end of the day, what we really are concerned with is not just what did Moses command, but what did Jesus command? Because we get, we, we get muddled. Um, all of us come into marriage, all of us uh, think of marriage with a certain paradigm, we can't help it because we've all grown up you know, in a home where there was a, a, some kind of, of view of marriage projected onto our young minds. Maybe it was a healthy marriage, great. Maybe it was an unhealthy one. Maybe it was a broken one. Regardless, all of us from our family of origin have an impression of marriage. All of us have you know, things that we're hearing and absorbing through friends and their views of marriage or through society at large and its view of marriage. And so ultimately, we need to ask, is my view of marriage defined by the world or is it defined by the kingdom? So there can be a lot of good things, you know, that, that will, you know, gather and glean that's caught versus taught. But even the best things are, are still going to be pale in comparison to God's view from the kingdom. But what does the world tell us about marriage? Um, two things. It tells us pretty much that it's a, basically a convenient contract and that it is a cultural convention. So it's a convenient contract that says, you know, marriage is for you. 
Marriage is, is for your self-satisfaction. It's for your personal happiness and fulfillment. And that means that if your marriage doesn't deliver on that agreement, that contractual agreement that, hey, I, you, you make me feel great. Uh, I love you because of all the things that you do for me and vice versa. And so that's kind of this fundamental posture toward the vows that a, a bride and a groom come together with. But then what ends up happening is that this assumption that marriage is this this contract begins to, to erode the commitment once you realize, I'm married to a sinner. <laughs> I'm married to somebody who's imperfect. This person can't make me happy completely. I mean, there's hopefully lots of joy and lots of satisfaction in our marriages, but that's not the, 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 um, the burden that that person can bear. No human being has that capacity uh, to make us happy. Uh, we'll talk more about where that happiness comes from. But, you know, once that satisfaction, once that sense of joy peters out in the marriage, then what, what we're going to do if marriage is just a contractual convenience is get out of this one and go find one that does make me happy. And that's what society says is okay. And it's a cultural convention, right? So it's for us and it's defined by culture. And whatever winds are blowing right now, you know, it's just this rudderless ship. It's just going to go in that direction. You know, just no, nothing, nothing giving any kind of objectivity to it. And so you can just redefine it no matter what, however way we want. Uh, and that's why you're seeing uh, this growing sense of dissatisfaction. We're going to keep changing the rules because it, it, people, Society feels like it's not working. Well, it's not working because people don't know what the purpose is. Christopher Ash wrote this book, Married for God, and he asks, why do relationships break down? Why are there, you know, why is there so much divorce? Uh, why are there fewer marriages now? Because people are realizing, well, why, why get married if it's just going to end up in divorce anyway? Marriage is temporary is the cultural assumption now. So let's just forget about the formalities. We'll just live together. Why do relationships break down? There are all sorts of reasons, but one of the biggest is disappointment. We wouldn't start unless we had hopes, whether or not we had to spell them out. And when our goals are frustrated, we are tempted to cut and run. So I want to begin with the question, what ought our purpose to be? What are the proper hopes and aims for marriage? We've looked at a few of those, you know, um, from Genesis, but in contrast, you know, to what culture is telling us, we need to ask, you know, what are my assumptions? Uh, that's, what, that's what we're being asked here by Christopher Ash. Like, what ought our purpose to be? What are the assumptions I'm bringing into my marriage? Or what are my, the assumptions I'm thinking about my future marriage? Or maybe you're knowing marriage isn't for me at all. I'm just going to live single. That's great. Um, I know we're talking a lot about marriage and so I'm going to ask for those of you who are, are single during this series, bear with us. I, I know I'm going to be um, asking a lot of your patience, but I want to keep this broad enough that it'll apply to all relationships too. Like the purposes that we see in Genesis to bring blessing and to be image bearers applies to all kinds of relationships, but specifically it's got a unique application in marriage. And marriage, in, instead of being a convenient contract, uh, defined by the kingdom and constrained by the kingdom, it, we see that it's a costly covenant. Marriage doesn't exist for me. It exists for God. It doesn't exist for my personal fulfillment, my personal happiness. 
My personal fulfillment and my personal happiness come vertically from my relationship with God. And I bring that fulfillment, I bring that happiness into my horizontal relationships, marriage being one of them. So God made marriage and he calls us into this lifelong covenant, a promise that won't be broken with our spouse. So it's satisfying when it's, when it's healthy, of course, but it's not a tool for my self-satisfaction. It's a costly covenant. What do we mean by that? Well, another way to put it is that marriage is a holy altar of self-sacrifice. Marriage is supposed to be this place where two people come together and they say, you know what, I'm going to die to self so that you might be blessed. And where do we see that pattern for relationship you know, elsewhere in Scripture? Where somebody comes along and says, you know what, I'm going to love you no matter how much it costs me. Even if I have to lay down my life, I am going to die on a holy altar of self-sacrifice for your blessing. Marriage is supposed to be patterned after the, the real marriage. There's a certain football game happening tonight. Anybody clued into this? This thing called the Super Bowl, right? Some of you are really, really excited about the game. Other of you could totally care less. You're like, oh, is that tonight? Okay, so the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers are squaring off in the biggest game of the year. This is like the game. This is the, this is the only game that matters for a lot of people. Some people could care less about the regular season. Like the preseason, forget it. No, nobody cares. And then uh, or your fantasy leagues, nobody cares. But the Super Bowl, everybody cares. Even people who don't watch football, they're going to watch tonight, maybe. They care. Why? Because it's the big one. And, and, and this is a, the, the comparison here, because when we think of Genesis 2, and God saying a man's going to leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh, like we see God making marriage then, and we think in our heads, oh, well, that's when God invented marriage. No, that's not true. Marriage has eternally existed. As God has for eternity past been in a loving relationship with his people. That's the real marriage. Do you remember um, Moses getting the commandments to make the tabernacle and then the temple, right? And, and Hebrews tells us that Moses was told, make it according to the pattern that was from above, the heavenly pattern. That's the real temple. That's the real tabernacle. And, the heaven, and then the earthly tabernacle, the earthly temple was just this copy, an imperfect copy of the real tabernacle. Our marriages are an imperfect copy of the real marriage. Paul tells husbands to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He came and he pursued us. And he loved us. Even when we didn't love him back. Even when we were acting very unlovable. Even when we didn't return his love. He loved us. He pursued us. He laid down his life for us to forgive our sins, and he pledged himself forever, I do. And then as, as the Holy Spirit works on us and opens the eyes of our mind and our heart to see the gospel, to see our, our, that we are sinners, that 
I need forgiveness. I need to be reconciled to my creator. And he has provided a redeemer, a, a lover, who would come and forgive me, who would come and love me and give himself for me. And when we come to that realization that Jesus did that for me, then we respond similarly, I do too. And that puts us in this heavenly marriage. We become the bride. The church is the bride. And Jesus is the groom. And so from heaven's perspective, from the kingdom of God's perspective, marriage is this costly covenant. Nothing would, would make Jesus be unfaithful. Nothing would make Jesus break his promise to his bride. And our marriages are supposed to reflect that. It's a divine institution. It doesn't exist for me. It exists for God. It wasn't defined by me. It's defined by God. We don't change marriage to make it work for our needs and our wants. Marriage changes us. It makes us more and more the men and women God calls us to be as we follow Jesus shows us how to really show love. So we looked at those you know, commandments of Moses. What about the commandments of Jesus? Like, did he ever give us anything more specific than just these words about sort of, you know, divorce and adultery? And honestly, no. Jesus doesn't give us a whole lot more. Um, but there are broader things that Jesus commands us that apply here. So you just turn to the Sermon on the Mount, and if you read the Sermon on the Mount through the lens of marriage, some really remarkable things start to pop out. So Jesus would say things like, hey, you've heard it say uh, to, love your, uh, to, to love your neighbor but hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemy. Like anybody can love somebody who's loving them back. But if you want to be like your father in heaven, then love the person who's not returning the favor. And what if we were to love that way in our marriages? To start pouring it on, you know, when, when things are hard, when you're in conflict or when your spouse isn't, you know, returning the favor. Is that when you give up or do you go, no, Jesus calls me to a different kind of love. Not the love that the world does. As long as you return the favor, I'll love you. No, to do the kind of love that Jesus does. To keep loving unconditionally. Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How about thy kingdom come, thy will be done in my marriage as it is in heaven. Where the purpose of my marriage is not my will, not my desires, not my plans, but his will, his desires, his plans. You know, for, for Jesus to say, you know, look, when you are pursuing my kingdom first, seeking his kingdom first, everything else is going to be added unto you. Making the kingdom of God our goal in our marriages changes how we view, you know, what satisfaction looks like and what happiness looks like. So all these things start to, to, to affect the way that we do marriage. So why didn't Jesus give us more specifics on marriage? I think it's a valid question. Marriage is pretty important. But I think the answer is, is worth considering uh, that the reason why Jesus didn't, you know, you, the reason why you got to go to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 or you know, Ephesians 5, to get really lush passages about marriage is because, well, Paul is speaking to those things specifically. Jesus is speaking to relationships generally because Jesus is telling us that marriage is not penultimate. Marriage is not the ultimate relationship. 
Marriage is a category of relationships. And so this is something that I really want uh, you, if you're a single person here, to hear very clearly. If you're not married, like, sometimes you get the sense in the church that you're living this, you know, sort of second best life. You don't have God's best. And that's really not true. Marriage is a subset of healthy relationships. And Jesus... (laughs) Can you imagine somebody telling Jesus, you're not married, so you're living sort of this second best lifestyle of celibacy. No, nothing could be further from the truth. Paul didn't live second best. Mary Magdalene didn't live second best. You don't live second best. So if you're divorced or widowed or not married yet, you know, don't get that impression. I'm, I'm sorry maybe the church, you know, isn't as aware sometimes of, of, of uh, perhaps an inordinate emphasis on marriage, but looking at Jesus, given his, his commandments, he's considering marriage a subset of healthy relationships, not the ultimate relationship. Um, and then just as we're concluding, you know, how do we get the power to live like this? If, if you're married, you know it's hard. Marriage can be wonderfully joyful and it can be incredibly complex. Uh, if you're Thinking about getting married, just know it can be incredibly complex and incredibly joyful. Where do we get the power to do this? How do we do this? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. When we live for Jesus, we start changing our expectations of the other, you know, all the horizontal relationships. Maybe it's friendship, maybe it's marriage. But as I said before, like looking to other people, looking horizontally for people to make us happy is inevitably going to fail because that person's shoulders are not strong enough to bear the weight of my personal happiness. Your personal happiness cannot depend on another sinful, imperfect human being. And the only person's shoulders who can bear that weight, who can fulfill us and can satisfy us, is Jesus. And so we've got to look to him who would stand up in, you know, in the midst of God's people and say audacious things like this, that if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and from within him or within her will flow streams of living water. That needs to be our experience of a vertical relationship with Jesus because when those waters are flowing within us, it means they're overflowing from us. We become the agents of blessing. We can bring happiness to others instead of wanting to suck happiness out of others. Is is Jesus enough for us? Is he a good husband? Is Jesus compassionate? Is he kind? Is he thoughtful? Is he attentive? Is he forgiving? He loves us well, even when we were not easy to love, even when we weren't returning the love, even when we just fail to love him back. He keeps loving us. So how does his love for us lead us to respond? 
We love him in return, to be sure. But the measure of our love for him is really in how we treat others. Whether they're friends, whether they're brothers, whether they're sisters, whether they're our spouses. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for coming to pursue us, to make us your bride, uh, to, to give us your eternal covenant of kindness and affection and forgiveness. Lord, thank you for being the one who, uh, who would never fail us uh, and who can really satisfy our longing uh, for joy and for happiness. And so, Father, would you find us connected to you at a deeper level? so that in all of our relationships, all of our friendships, and in our marriages in particular, you would get glory and our ability to be accurate image bearers, for us to to exercise your your good kingdom and to see uh, things repaired and straightened and uh, and leveled. Lord, we pray that you would uh, bless marriages here at the tabernacle. Uh, We know that there are many that are beautiful and are flourishing and there are many that are struggling.